The Energy Gang is brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertzilla is leading the energy transition with the Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy, an open access tool to help you understand what the future will bring in energy markets. Stick with us at the end of the show to hear how this tool is helping us understand the pathway forward in the post-COVID world. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading provider of PV inverter solutions around the world for solar and storage. It's meeting the growing calls for deep decarbonization with constant innovation and decarbonizing its own business. Learn more about SunGrow's cutting-edge R&D and decarbonization efforts at sungrowpower.com. And we are brought to you by CPower. CPower has a new book out. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID. It's authored by 19 CPower experts with a combined 300 years in energy experience. It reveals key energy management strategies used by successful organizations during the wildest year of this young century, 2020. If you want to optimize your energy use and energy spend in 2021, you got to download this book. It's at thecpowerway.com slash 2021. You can also find it in the show notes. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. The heart of Texas froze on Valentine's Day, leaving millions without power, heat, and water for nearly a week during an Arctic cold snap. The finger-pointing started immediately. Was it renewables, natural gas, market design, political inaction? The crisis also turned many Americans, including Texans, onto the anomalies of the Texas grid. This week, we'll talk about what happened in Texas, reflecting on the responses and projecting the consequences for how we engineer the grid. Then, did the shale boom fail to create all those promised jobs? New research shows the natural gas boom did not bring a massive employment wave to counties in the Marcellus and Utica shales. Wealth, yes, but not so many jobs. And in a related story, will Biden's job push in clean energy get hindered by a fight with the labor movement? We'll look at the complicated picture. And to help piece that picture together are my two co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Catherine is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She joins me as usual from her pandemic office, which is a bedroom in her house. It looks like you're in a different bedroom, though. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Yeah, I'm using one of my kids' bedrooms. So it just seemed more comfortable this morning, and there's sun coming in the window, so I feel warm. Blue, beautiful blue curtains, a tree. The sun is coming in. Very nice. Jigger Shaw is there in Bethesda, Maryland. He's the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He is, of course, in his son's bedroom in Bethesda, Maryland. Hi, Jigger. Hey, I'm just looking out the window and seeing trees that'll probably bloom prematurely. Uh, yeah, we're in here in Boston. It went from winter to spring very quickly. So I'm afraid the same thing is going to happen here. <laughs> well, let's go to Texas, where it was very cold last week, which caused a set of cascading failures through the state's grid. Even for energy veterans, the breadth and depth of the failures in Texas were breathtaking. As Arctic air froze power plants, gas lines, and mechanical instruments, the grid was shut down, leaving 4 million people without electricity, unknown millions without heat, and three times that many without water. Texas has been through this before, most recently in 2011. Regulators were warned, so who is to blame for the catastrophe? The CEO of ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, Bill Magnus, said Texas was on the brink of something much worse. He said frequency on the grid had dropped so low that if they hadn't shut off all those people's power, the entire Texas grid could have collapsed perhaps for months. But 
Was it really the fault of ERCOT, the market operator? Or does responsibility go to the regulators at the Railroad Commission who have authority to prevent some of the problems we saw? Or the governor himself or power plant operators? Who is to blame? We're still figuring that out, but we have some thoughts. Also, what does it tell us about the resource mix and hardening efforts on a zero-carbon grid? This conversation is going to happen in two sections. I think the first will be mostly a postmortem on the resource market and political failures. The second is going to be about what happens next. Is this a catalyzing event for the electric utility industry? So one image that stuck with me was of houses full of smoke and fires and this 18-year-old that the Wall Street Journal wrote about. To keep warm, he built a fire inside a ceramic pot in his apartment with hand sanitizer and gasoline. His name is Dalen Cook. So, Catherine, were there any images that stuck with you about people trying to get by, people like Dalen? Yeah, the people burning their furniture and clothes to stay warm was just so tragic. And, you know, I'm lucky in that I do have a lot of family down there. My brother lives in Dallas. My cousin lives outside of Houston. And Dallas really didn't get hit the way a lot of other communities did. My brother's community was fine. My cousin in Dallas came back after about 14 hours of an outage. Um, And I reached out to a lot of other friends. And there was just a a lot of different experiences for those that had solar and battery backup. They were fine. Um, But a lot of folks had pipes burst in their homes. And water is so damaging. So there was a lot of that. And then it was so cold that everything froze. So um, it was so tragic. And uh, my family was lucky, but a lot of other ones were not. Jigger, what about you? Anything stand out for you uh, image-wise, stories? I, like Catherine, have a lot of family down there, particularly in Houston. And um, one of my uncles um, lives in a really poor neighborhood in Houston. He moved in in 1979 and just hadn't moved. Um, And a lot of the housing stock had turned over. And there were just a lot of, you know, a lot of houses that had three families living in one house. Um, And when you think about, you know, what everybody went through with COVID, um, there's just a lot of a lot of people who, frankly, um, were already down from 12 months of suffering. And like Catherine said, they had pipe bursts, right? They had things that occurred where you're like, what the hell? Like, you know, like after all of this stuff, right? After like, we're still in like the the last three months of 2020, as people call it. Um, you know, it's just, it was just nuts. I mean... I, the one the one thing that I thought was was amazing though was how much um people use their cars. So there are a lot of people who like went in their cars to stay warm. Um and then there was the tragedy where there was a mother and daughter who died of carbon monoxide poisoning um because they left their car on in the garage. They had forgotten to keep the garage door open. Um and you know, you had gasoline shortages throughout uh, Houston because of that. Um, and so I just, I, I don't think that for whatever reason, with all this news that we get, I don't think people are actually feeling the level of calamity here. Um, one uh, friend that I talked to said that the losses for the state of Texas will be higher than Hurricane Harvey, which was $132 billion for Hurricane Harvey. Which I think was higher than Superstorm Sandy. Which was higher than Superstorm Sandy. So I, I like, you know, when you have a hurricane, everyone expects it. You have wall-to-wall coverage. You have people trying to, like, stand up in the wind while they're, like, you know, holding their microphone. 
Here, I just think it was just quiet destruction across the entire state. And I think that people still haven't done a full inventory of just how much uh, pain and suffering this thing caused. Well, it certainly got a lot of mainstream news outlets talking about the makeup of the grid and the peculiarities of Texas's grid in a way that they don't often do. And we'll get into where the blame lies or potentially where the blame lies. I think people are still trying to figure out exactly what happened. But I do want to start with a TikTok of what happened um, in terms of operation of the grid that caused this calamity. A lot of listeners by now will have probably listened to other podcasts or watched cable news or, or read newspapers about the, the incident. But just so that we're on the same page, Jigger, can you provide a very brief overview of what exactly happened? As you guys all know, I mean, I think by now you have heard from other places a lot of the details, so I'll try to keep it high level. But so by um, the 12th and 13th of February, we already knew this was going to happen. Right. So weather forecasters had said this was going to happen. I think I even posted it on my LinkedIn that the polar vortex was coming. So so natural gas prices had already spiked from three dollars a million BTU to like nine dollars a million BTU um, on the forward price curves. And electricity prices had also spiked. And so people, the markets had already been signaling that they knew this was going to happen. And people who didn't have hedges in place already were being told that those hedges were going to be more expensive um, going into uh, Valentine's Day. So we knew that. Separately, ERCOT had the ability to ask generators that were planning on doing um, maintenance, right? Because this is the time a lot of people do maintenance. Like Texas doesn't usually have some sort of uh, peak in the winter. Um, that, hey, this is coming. Please end your maintenance outage and be prepared. But Texas doesn't have a way to penalize people to do that. So they have a program that says, hey, we, we'll pay you more if you guys, you know, end your maintenance cycle and come back, right? So that's that's the context setting. Then you go into the actual event and you immediately started seeing failures. And so you had about 10,000 megawatts or so of failures that occurred mostly on the natural gas side um, because the coal piles still hadn't frozen, right? And then by the second day, you had coal piles that had frozen. And so they couldn't actually use their automated equipment to bring the coal into um, into the coal plants. And so, but it was mostly, I would say, a natural gas problem. You then had 30,000 megawatts of natural gas outages, right? And a lot of this was also because about one-fifth of the entire nation's supply of natural gas had frozen in in lines. And the way that that happens is not just through equipment, which is, you know, like compressors and some of that stuff, but also natural gas, when pumped out of wells in the Permian Basin, et cetera, has water content in it. So what happens in the Northeast is that people actually filter a lot of that water out of the natural gas supply so that it doesn't freeze in lines. Texas does not have such infrastructure because Texas did not believe that it needed to pay for such infrastructure. And so you had a lot of gas lines freeze, and that then shut off the total gas supply that came out of that line. So it wasn't just like that one isolated freezing incident, but you had all of that. Then you were compounded by the fact that, which for the right reasons, um, the retail natural gas usage has primacy. And so so 
if you don't have enough natural gas to go around, it's the generators that actually get shorted the natural gas, not the residential customers um, who are using gas. To add insult to injury, all of the buildings downtown in Austin and Houston and Dallas were still using natural gas and electricity, even though there were no people in the buildings. And so you had all this load that was using, and it was infuriating, right? Because people on the poor side of the tracks were looking at downtown and saying, why are all the lights on while they're telling me that the lights might turn off? On the nuclear side, nuclear performed really well. The one nuclear power plant that shut down um, had a freeze in um, a backup water system. And so they could have actually run through, but you know, from a prudency standpoint, when a backup safety system has an issue, nuclear power plants are designed to shut down. It took them a few you know, days to bring it back up. But in general, I would say all in all, um, this was really a, a challenge around figuring out how to keep the natural gas generators in Texas running, because that is the main plan that ERCOT has during the winter is that they are really natural gas heavy because as we all know, wind and solar are not expected to produce a lot of power in the winter time. And so it's really all a natural gas story. Yeah, and wind came back really quickly too. It It went down for a bit. It's a small part. It wasn't expected to be a big part of the grid, but it came back quickly. Um, In the point of order podcast that Texas Tribune runs, Michael Weber, who's a professor at UT Austin, was great at explaining this. And to Jigger's point, he sort of connected the dots that frozen water leads to gas shortage, leads to electricity shortage, leads to water shortage, right? So it's not just that people are out of electricity, but they're also out of water. Yeah, Michael Weber is an expert on the water energy nexus. And this clearly showed the dependency of the different uh, sectors on each other, and it caused a cascading set of failures. According to um, the analysts over at Wood McKenzie, we saw that the freeze take a huge toll on gas production. Um, In fact, it knocked out about a fifth of total U.S. output that was coming from Texas because of the freeze. So um, just an enormous amount of gas was unavailable to generators. Um, So I guess the question is, who is to blame? And Jigger, in your description there, you said that gas is to blame. And I want to unpack that a little bit. Uh, Catherine, first to you, like when when this all happened, we saw Governor Greg Abbott come out and blame the wind turbines. And Fox News, of course, was talking about the Green New Deal. And what happens if liberals take control? They're going to destroy your grids. Um, Of course, As Michael Weber pointed out on that podcast, actually, uh, Texas has long been under conservative control. It is an independent grid. And the failures we saw was a result of conservative leadership. But just walk me through how the blame game played out as this unfolded, Catherine. What was your perception? Yeah, it was breathtaking, um, although not completely unexpected. So the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is the coal, gas and oil lobby, you know, immediately got to the governor and they created this narrative on the Green New Deal and wind farms being the cause. And like the Green New Deal is Texas is like the last place they're going to put the Green New Deal in place right now. I mean, it's just like not a factor, but they were able to somehow create this narrative and distract from really the problems at hand. When really, you know, the failures from the top, so the governor, it's a little bit like when Trump did not have a unified response to COVID. This is like the governor not having a unified response to say, all right, 
people, this is what we need to do in this situation. Instead, trying to shift blame to some some sector that was really not to blame at all. And just that leadership in the state was an enormous failure, regardless of what happened down the line. Um, This has happened before. And there were recommendations in 2011 when FERC and NERC put this report together on what happened during the last big Texas blackout. And there have been other incidents, too. In 2014, there was another one. But all these recommendations were not put into place. In Texas, freedom is the is the main currency, and evidently that has present prevented taking care of their customers. Okay, so the real complicated question that people are trying to answer, and Jigger, my guess is that you're going to have a, a simpler answer to this question, but when we think about who is to blame, there are a bunch of different questions people are asking. Was it the regulators at the Railroad Commission who failed to force generators to winterize? Was it some fundamental piece of market design under ERCOT? Was it the governor who failed to provide leadership? Was it specific set of resources? You know, we talked about wind turbines. With the actual frozen wind turbines we saw was, you know, just it it, it was a fraction of the gen- ex- expected generation um, by ERCOT. And in fact, the frozen natural gas plants were, um, it was, I think, 45% of generation or 50% of generation. We saw a kickoff line. Um, so there's sort of like the market design and regulation question that people are trying to figure out. Um, how much should have Texas have done after the massive winter freeze in 2011, which pertains to that question? And, and then 2014 what, and, and 20, 2018 and 2019. And then what resources are to blame, if any? And is there anything inherent in those resources that causes a problem? Or is it just a failure to prepare for a type of weather event? Very complicated set of questions. How are you working your way through those? So I think you always start with intent, right? The intent of the Texas grid and the regulatory posture that it takes is to have the lowest possible cost for industrial uses, right? That is the intent of the Texas market. And from their perspective, having power outages or having issues during certain times, whether it's high air conditioning days or um, or cold snaps like this, is acceptable to meeting the ultimate challenge, which is around... Um, the the lowest price, right? So like, so I think we have to start by saying that, like, we can't be optimizing for something that they're not optimizing for, right? If we're optimizing for 100%, you know, electricity reliability and figuring out how to help the, the poor, etc. And they're not optimizing for that, then you can't be surprised when the system that they created doesn't optimize for the outcomes that you are trying to optimize for, right? So let's, let's start there, right? Now, the question becomes, when you think about what failed here, right? Like obviously generators failed due to lack of investment in weatherization. And so we can talk about how you force people and how you force companies to weatherize in a structure like this where they have no ability to force people to weatherize, right? And the legislature doesn't really want people to weatherize. But the other piece of this is that there were certain systems that failed that they did not expect to fail, right? And that is why I lay the blame 
almost entirely on the gas industry. Because when you talk to the governor or the Oil and Gas Association, they did not expect that a cold snap like this was going to shut in 4 million barrels a day of oil production, which has now been shut in, such that oil prices have jumped up to $64 a barrel on Brent, right? And so this is not an outcome that the oil and gas industry expected, right? Just looking at this from their own selfish best interest, they would have wanted the heart, the infrastructure to be hardened so they could make money on 4 million barrels a day of oil production, right? Separately, they would have wanted the natural gas coming out of those wells to actually be flowing down pipelines. And right, so the fact that there are parts of this system that failed that they did not intend to fail. There are also parts of this system that they all thought, and when I say they, I mean the governor, I mean the Railroad Commission, I mean ERCOT, that they thought was acceptable losses within the market structure that they have chosen to pursue, right? And we need to separate those two out and argue them differently, right? So the part that they didn't expect was just bad planning. And that is what governments are supposed to do is to plan so that things that they didn't expect to fail, they actually had real processes, procedures, regulations that the legislature passes to make sure they don't fail. And then the things that they did expect to fail, which are these these you know grid interruptions that they've had in 2011, 2014, 1989, 2019, 2018, right? That all of those things, it may not be anymore to allow those things to fail regularly because so many people were hurt and dozens of people died. Catherine, whose job is it if the industry fails to take the necessary steps after to winterize, for example, after these freezes and grid interruptions? Whose job was it to do it and who who's responsible? So... I mean, the the industry has no incentive to do the right thing, right? They don't have the incentive to invest in weatherization, for example. I mean, what you would want is something to be put into place to say, you need to prepare for this, and here's how you do it. You need to be given some sort of incentive to do so. I mean, a lot of companies have made a lot of money down there because the costs are so cheap. They're so cheap that in a lot of cases, solar doesn't even pencil out, and solar's cheap. So... You know, there there are a lot of people who've made a lot of money in Texas, and it's been a really, really great market. And um, so the market mechanism isn't necessarily the wrong one. Um, I do think co-ops and munis are at a distinct disadvantage in this situation. But I mean, I think we need to look to the Public Utility Commission. I think we need to look to the Railroad Commission. We need to look to the legislature to say, all right, we need to figure out a way not to have all of this go on the backs of the customers and securitize all this failure on the backs of all of those customers who did not, in fact, have power during that time, but instead make sure that we have mechanisms in place that incentivize actual investment in preparing for the worst. I'm going to echo a point here that was made on the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast. Uh, Jason Bordoff had Jesse Jenkins from Yale and Cheryl LaFleur, a former FERC commissioner, on to talk through things. And I think it was Jesse who made the point that market reforms that people are calling for aren't necessarily the answer. There's this debate about, whether, well, should Texas have had a capacity market instead of just a real-time energy market? And would this reserve of power plants have helped anything? And actually, like, it wasn't really a market failure. It was a regulation failure. People 
didn't take the necessary steps to winterize. And it wouldn't have matter if you had power plants sitting around in a capacity market to serve customers. They probably wouldn't have operated if they weren't winterized. So it's not it's a regulation question, a good old fashioned regulation question rather than the, the kind of jujitsu around market reforms. Does that seem right to you? Yeah, but on that, I think it's important to just make sure that we're being very clear around how Texas works. So the only group that has the right to force winterization is the state legislature. That is the only group that can do it. ERCOT is not allowed to to, man, to mandate this. They can certainly provide greater incentives around the 4CP market, which is the coincident peak market, or other things that we can go through. But but outside of providing incentives for generators to do it, they don't want to have a stick approach, which is what a capacity market approach is. And so so the only group in your construct that you're talking through is the legislature. That is the only group in Texas that can say, we are mandating that any generator that wants to participate in ERCOT has to winterize. Like That is the only group that can do that. Last question for both of you on this segment. What was avoidable, what was unavoidable? Catherine? I mean, unavoidable was the weather. Uh, (laughs) That was not something anybody could change. Um, I think avoidable was a lot of the pain and suffering. And I think that that is a failure of leadership in Texas. And I think they need to take a good look at you know, how to make sure that you protect people and give them what they need to survive in situations like this. Jigger? Yeah. I mean, for me, the main thing that was avoidable was all the natural gas system failures, right? This is something that we do on a regular basis in most of the United States. We manage natural gas grids through freezing temperatures in most of the United States. And the fact that the natural gas industry, I'm not talking about the natural gas generators, but the actual industry who manages the molecules failed miserably to have a resilient system in Texas. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables and storage. SunGrow is helping others decarbonize, but it's doing it itself. In the past year, SunGrow joined RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. And even amid the pandemic, SunGrow has been able to bring innovative solutions to market. Recently, it rolled out a new 3.6 megawatt outdoor central inverter, a flexible option for standalone solar projects or solar plus storage. Its massive R&D task force is pushing the boundaries of innovation to deliver practical solutions for cutting edge solar projects everywhere and help everyone decarbonize. To learn more, visit sungrowpower.com. We are also brought to you by Power. How did your organization's demand-side energy management fare in the chaos of 2020? I'm guessing mixed? Well, C-Power's latest book, Demand-Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID, takes a peek into successful strategies from eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America. This book breaks down the demand response and demand management programs available in five of the nation's open energy markets, as well as those offered by several of the largest electric utilities in U.S. deregulated markets. It's authored by 19 C-Power experts with a combined total of more than 300 years of energy experience. Demand-side energy management in the time of COVID is a must-have resource for any commercial and industrial organization striving to optimize their energy use in 2021. Visit thecpowerway.com 2021 to download the new book or follow the show notes.
Let's look closer at the long-term consequences in Texas and beyond. When the jet stream wobbled, sending Arctic air blasting across Texas, demand for electricity surged to 69,000 megawatts. That's more than the state's worst-case planning scenario. And then 30,000 megawatts went offline. A lot of that could have been prevented if power providers prepared for winter and the natural gas industry had winterized as well, which we discussed in the first segment. But how do you actually do that in a place like Texas? What should have been done? Uh, And while extreme events like this will happen more often on a changing planet, they may still be years or perhaps even a decade apart. What does that mean for grid hardening and market reforms all over the country? How do you strike the appropriate balance? The moment is right to ask these questions. We actually have an administration that is going to try to spend lots of money to harden grids, upgrade infrastructure, and accelerate zero-carbon resources. So I want to talk about like the industry impact, um, how you make these trade-offs, how we actually plan in this new world. I do want to look at you know some lessons learned from the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy. We saw this legitimate effort across the country to ramp up more smart metering, storm response coordination, communication efforts, the way the industry comes together to respond to these events faster. Catherine, do you think we'll see something similar happen here? So there are a lot of smart meters in Texas, and you can go to smartmeterdata.com and you can look at your data. So there are a lot of tools for customers now. The problem I see is that there are not as many incentives on that side um, of the grid. So I think one of the things we have to think about is making sure that we have value streams to access for distributed resources. Um, demand response shows up, um, but there's just not a huge market for it. It's There's a very low budget in the Texas system for demand response. And yet demand response saved the Texas grid in 2014 during the polar vortex and uh, and over a hundred hours of demand response. I talked to just one of the demand response providers down there and they said they called their customers for over a hundred hours of curtailment during this last week. So demand response is one thing that needs to be incentivized. We need a lot more on the edge of the grid and really accessing value streams. We have the tools to do it. The issue is making sure that customers are able to and you, and retailers and other providers are able to really um, implement those. And I would say this is like the one place where Texas and California, and I know they don't like to be used in the same sentence as California, um, are not dissimilar in that both of those states have relied much too heavily on centralized infrastructure and much less on distributed. And I think if we get more of a distributed uh, infrastructure and really incentivize distributed energy resources and microgrids in Texas, you're going to find a lot more hardening of the grid uh, than you had this time. Yeah, that's a super interesting component of this. I'm really interested in thinking about the industry-wide impacts. So if you imagine what happened in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut in the wake of Sandy. They threw a lot of money behind microgrids. Uh, Con Edison in particular became kind of the first climate utility. They had to like harden their substation infrastructure. They had to come up with a new plan to prepare for sea level rise. It really changed the way the utility started thinking about long-term planning. And then, of course, in California, after the campfire and the subsequent fires there, PG&E, 
has become another climate utility where the really has to start thinking about climate preparedness and risk in every part of its planning operations because as we see the the human and economic consequences are dire and they're facing those 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 threats ongoing all the time and then now in Texas I wonder if we'll see something similar um does this kind of change the framework for the way we think about u- utility planning market planning well, Texas is harder because remember, Texas is not only deregulated into two entities, it's deregulated into three entities. So you actually have a grid operator, you have, you know, the wholesale power market, right, the generators, and then you have the retailers. And so getting all three of them to coordinate with each other and figuring out what pocket to take that money out of to to implement these, you know, visions of, of grandeur is really difficult to do, right? And so... Um, the vast majority of the suggestions that I think will that will be made will be supply side suggestions, right? So these are weatherization of ERCOT infrastructure. So, for instance, you know they have this um, this market called the four CP market, which is the four coincident peak market. So when you have uh, four fifteen minute periods where the the grid is going to hit a peak. And this is only in June, July, August, and September, because they didn't imagine it would happen in the winter. You you get paid if you reduce that that demand. So if you're able to shed load at those four periods of time, then they'll pay you a huge amount of money the following year. And so that's the mechanism by which a lot of these microgrids or distributed generation resources get paid. So like Enchanted Rock or some of these other companies that we've talked about, um, the way that they get paid is through these four CP payments and figuring out how to help Walmart or HEB or some of these other customers reduce these payments, right? So that's that's the first suggestion I'm sure the market will, will suggest. The second one is building out transmission lines. I can't imagine that happening because that would then you know, subject Texas to FERC regulation, which I can't imagine that they would possibly want to have happen. But Right, well, build out cross-border transmission lines, you mean. That's right, to New Mexico and SPP, you know, power zones. Um, and then the third is adding more capacity, right? So you could imagine them adding a capacity market where you set a reserve requirement, right? So every load-serving entity would have a resource adequacy requirement, say 15% on top of the base, and then, in, in, and then you lower the price cap from nine thousand dollars per megawatt hour to maybe a thousand dollars a megawatt hour, right? So this would reduce the magnitude of scarcity events, but you would actually now have a forward capacity market again. Something that I would probably believe is not going to happen, just because I do think they have a religious bent around having an energy only market in Texas. But 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 I do think that I, I do think it's important for us to recognize that like. The people that we're talking about here are have shown themselves physically incapable of of having the breadth of conversation that we're trying to have here, right? So the vast majority of people in the market are talking about um, these sort of established business models, right? So when you look at Calpine, Vistra, you know, NRG, they're Gen Tailors, right? So they own generation in Texas. And they're retailers. And most gen tailors had load that came offline, so they had to pay the $9,000 a megawatt hour to meet retail load. So each one of those companies are probably going to lose $300 million. And that's why their stock prices have gone down and and they're going to have to settle. But like a lot of the small retailers will go bankrupt and they are protected by 
credit sleeves from like Shell and BP. Shell and BP are going to have to pay on behalf of those small retailers that go bankrupt all the losses that are incurred. One of the other things here, though, is that ERCOT has already said that there's not enough money to pay everybody. So people didn't pay the $9,000 a megawatt hour. They incurred the $9,000 a megawatt hour. And so ERCOT has put a freeze as of today on anyone sending out electricity bills to consumers. And they are going to have to figure out how to sort this thing out. So when you think about all of these conversations and all of these solutions that people are talking about, they're all in the wholesale part of the, of the business. There's not a single person that I've talked to who is talking about how you use microgrids or distributed generation or other things to solve this problem, right? Except for on the margins, which again, to Catherine's point, is very similar to California. Yeah, and I would just say on the grid ties, um, if you could cut a deal somehow where ERCOT could still not be in FERC jurisdiction, but you would have ties to the rest, to other grids, I mean, maybe there would be something to be done. It just seems ludicrous that that they aren't tied, especially when Texas has an enormous wind and solar resource that they could be exporting most of the time and making a ton of money off of. And then just when they absolutely have to have it, make sure that they can get power elsewhere. Now, granted, there were some areas of the country like Louisiana was having some of the same, you know, Mississippi were having a lot of the same issues um, with cold weather, but you would still have a much better system and a much more hardened system. So I wonder if there's some deal to be cut um, with the regulators on this so that you can actually build out and tie to other transmission systems. Yeah, that is more likely. But the kind of ideas that I think are highly unlikely, but 99% cheaper, is the thing is, is that when you think about smart meters, right, today, if you don't pay your bill, the utility doesn't come out to your building and lockbox your meter. The, The smart meter actually has an ability for you to send a computer signal to the house and shut off their power. So you could imagine that they could have actually instituted rolling blackouts throughout the the region in a more equitable equitable way. Instead, they basically said, you don't get power, you get power. Because your circuit has a hospital on the circuit. Your circuit doesn't have a hospital on the circuit. Therefore, you're out of power. Like this, this whole thing where we basically 10 years, 12 years after we funded all of the deployment of smart meters, nobody has has paid for the software by which to actually brown people out six hours at a time in a rolling fashion so no one freezes to death. But instead, some circuits don't have power for 50 hours, and some circuits have power through the entire thing because they're on a hospital circuit, is ridiculous. And these kinds of solutions were precisely what was proposed in all of the orders with the Public Service Commission when smart meters were installed. These are the things the utilities said that that smart meters would enable. But God almighty, if the utilities are actually going to unlock any of these abilities to get data out of smart meters or actually like, like use the full functionality of smart meters. Catherine, how does this intersect with the Biden administration's plans? Again, going back to Superstorm Sandy, I think what we heard from the Department of Energy was a lot more talk about grid resiliency and grid hardening. 
And so eventually money was deployed for that aim. And it, it truly changed the way that investments were made and the way programs were structured. Does this have a direct influence on the way the Biden team starts thinking about infrastructure development? Yeah, I do think in some ways, certainly having um, a resilience metric of some sort to understand what the value of that is and being able to monetize that. Um, the other thing that will very likely happen is that FERC uh, and NERC will have a lot of conversations and probably produce a not dissimilar report than one that was produced in 2011. Um, again, they don't have jurisdiction over ERCOT, so that may or may not go anywhere, but there will be a lot of discussions. There will be hearings on the Hill. Um, and so this will get wrapped up in a more national, dis in a much more national discussion on what does resilience look like? And certainly for Biden, this is, and for, well, for the world, this is wrapped up in climate. This is about a climate crisis over which we don't have any direct control on a day-to-day -day basis, but we have an, the ability to mitigate over the long term. We also need to be able to look ahead at what could happen rather than behind at what has happened because things are changing and we need to be able to adjust and adapt to how is this going to change and how do we build for the future, not for the past. And one of the things that I think we need to revisit broadly out of this Texas situation is that when you look at the role that ICF plays, the road, the role that Clear Result, Alliance to Save Energy, all of them have bought into this false notion of cost-effectiveness formulas at the utility. So they're like, well, building this generator is cost-effective. But doing energy efficiency in this person's home doesn't pay for itself out of some weird-ass formula. When you look at the macro picture, it's 90% cheaper to weatherize someone's home than to harden the grid. And so we're in a situation right now where it is always better to help rich people ensure that their assets are worth more in the future than it is to help poor people weather these storms. And that formula has to change. Let's finish by looking at competing visions for energy jobs. In 2010, the American Petroleum Institute claimed that natural gas jobs across the Marcellus Shale in New York, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia would create 280,000 jobs. Industry estimates put job creation across the Marcellus and Utica Shale formations at nearly half a million jobs. But a new report from the Ohio River Valley Institute shows a much different picture. The researchers looked at job growth between 2008 and 2019 in 22 counties that made up 90% of natural gas production in those states that I mentioned. And they found that jobs only grew by 1.7%. Meanwhile, the number of jobs grew by 10% nationwide. Now, GDP in those 22 counties went up by a lot, 55%, but the jobs did not materialize. So this raises two questions. How good has the fracking boom really been for workers? And if we're once again going to emphasize a massive increase in clean energy jobs under a Biden White House, could we see similar shortcomings? What are the tensions at play for his agenda? Let's start with the Ohio River Valley Institute study. Again, it looked at 22 counties most deeply involved in natural gas. Those counties saw huge increases in G GDP, but not the promised jobs. Catherine, what were the top level findings here? What, what are they saying happened? Yeah, and this is all based on federal data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So in those eight counties, the gross domestic product 
grew, but the communities did not reap the benefits. And that's because labor, materials, equipment are sourced outside of those counties. And so while uh, while the industry grew in Frackalacha, as you might want to call it, um, there were there were fe- not as much growth in jobs, in personal income gains, and in population growth. And you're doing this all at the expense of the environment and public health because of the type of industry we're talking about. Yeah, in general, I think this this report a- asked a question that none of us asked which is basically they were like, how many specific jobs were in the counties that produced the gas? And I think the answer is very little. A lot of people came in from out of county to do the work, stayed in motels and hotels, and then left the county, right? And so, fine. I don't think we're disputing that the oil and gas industry created jobs in the United States. I think this report is simply saying that they didn't create a lot of jobs in those particular counties that were impacted by the wells, right? And so they got all of the environmental degradation and the landowners and mineral rights owners got money, but they didn't get the job creation in those counties, which I think is completely true. I don't quite know what they're trying to say, though, as vis-a-vis like renewable energy, for instance, or other things. We're going to have similar situations with renewable energy where we build a 600 megawatt wind farm in a county and we'll bring a lot of specialty labor into the county to do the work and those people will leave and there'll be a couple of full-time people who live there who manage the wind farm and the county will get you know money every year in property taxes, right? So like, So I'm trying to figure out what they would rather have happen and I don't think energy resources work this way. That brings me to the the premise of the conversation. So I wanted to talk about some of these top-level figures and the shortcomings in the oil and gas industry. But I do think it's important to think about how this pertains to Biden's jobs agenda, because as you said, the same thing could potentially happen. What does that mean for industry promises about jobs or government promises about jobs and how we think through the nationwide versus local impact. Because this is not unique to the oil and gas industry. So interestingly, Governor Wolf of Pennsylvania has, every year that he's been in office, he has proposed an extraction tax on the fossil industry. And that tax would pay for workforce training and support. And it would be called Back to Work Pennsylvania. They would do training, digital literacy, IT, childcare, a really holistic plan for getting people to work. And the gas industry is never going to let that happen, an extraction tax. But I think the notion of needing to be super intentional and making sure that these benefits go to the local communities is really important. And we do have to think about that for the clean energy industry. We can't just have something come down from on high to say, here's the goal, go for it, y'all, because it will happen the way Jigger says it will happen. And I think what we do need to do is make sure that we are including those communities and making sure that whatever the resources there, we we they have what they need for training. And it may not be in that specific industry. It could be in something else, but making sure that from the labor front, we're thinking very locally while holistically about the workforce. Well, there's there's a number of levels here, right? Remember, we had this conversation, what was it, like two years ago, maybe, on the podcast where we talked about renewable energy, uh, you know, 
large wind farms and solar farms and what they should do to get community support and buy-in for these projects. I, I think we should all figure out what's reasonable and figure this stuff out on multiple levels. On the labor level, I do not think it is reasonable at all to have local labor. Right? These are very specialized people who have very specialized skills. If people actually want to learn how to be a windsmith or learn how to like build solar farms, there are literally curriculums in community colleges around the country. We paid for that with the Department of Labor during era stimulus. So there are a lot of people who could go to their local community college and get trained on how to be you know, a windsmith. That doesn't mean they're going to get a job working locally. If they actually get this job, they will probably have to move around every two years to wherever the wind farm is getting constructed, right? And so I just want to make sure we're crystal clear that we're not creating local jobs with utility scale wind and solar farms, except for maybe some temporary jobs around moving earth and some construction jobs and some foundation jobs, et cetera. Now, where you might create a ton of jobs is if we build solar on 30 million homes, right? Which is what John Farrell over at, you know, Institute for Local Self-Reliance is pushing, right? And Sunrun and others are pushing. So if you want local jobs, then you do more distributed generation. And oh, by the way, the the report from Chris Clack and company shows that it's actually the same price or cheaper than utility scale, um, you know, resources for about 20% of the grid because you save on grid costs. And so if we want local job creation in these places, then we should be focusing on distributed energy resources and not utility-scale resources. But I I do think that that is one conversation, which is around labor, and then there's another conversation around wealth creation. And on the conversation around wealth creation, this is about educating counties and local jurisdictions. Remember, the way that renewable energy is funded is entirely through cost of capital. That is the entire game. We are a fully financialized resource at this point. So most counties have the ability to raise gargantuan amounts of money at 2% interest, 1.8% interest, which is cheaper than what a lot of these wind and solar farms can raise the money for. They can raise it at like 2.3% returns or 2.5% returns. So if they wanted to co-invest in the farms in their county, the federal government has many programs that allow them to do that. They can borrow the money from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and actually like, you know, get it get it federally guaranteed, and then they could invest the money themselves into the wind farm and keep all of that money in their county. And then they would become super wealthy. So there are lots of ways for them to do this on the financial side, which is not the same as the labor side. Yeah, and I think you we need to look broader too than just wind and solar. I think there are great opportunities in wind and solar. Certainly solar on, in rural communities is going to be really important. But we also need to look at regenerative agriculture and cultural growth and tourism and other things that communities can you know, can create wealth uh, with that are, you know, potentially not just about clean energy, but really still use the skills or build on the skills they already have. Let's wrap up. Let's do our free electrons. What is keeping you busy, Catherine? Usually it's some kind of report. Are you digging through reports and white papers or is it something else? 
Oh my gosh, it is a report. I don't know how you knew that. Um, <laughs> this report was released yesterday, I think. It's called Transmission Planning for 100% Clean Electricity. And it was done by the Energy Systems Integration Group at the National Renewable Energy Lab with a lot of folks like Aaron Bloom, remember, who did the SEAM study, and um, Allison Silverstein, who is a really great grid thinker as well. And it's all about how do you get transmission planning in the country to get us to 100% clean energy. And they recommend a national transmission planning authority and identifying renewable energy zones and designing this national macro grid. Now, I spend a lot of my time doing distributed energy resources, which I think are crucial to the system. So it's really interesting to me to look at what's happening on the transmission side and what are these folks thinking about on, you know, what is the investment? Because if you don't build it, you're going to have a world of trouble down the line, and it could cost a trillion dollars for 100% clean energy by 2050 if you don't have a grid to support it. So it's pretty interesting. Jigger, what's your free electron? Well, so I um, wanted to highlight that the World Economic Forum uh, showed that last year uh, electric vehicle market share in the world doubled from you know 2.5% to roughly 4.2%. And um, and then also highlight the fact that um, in Houston, right, during the Texas crisis, there are a lot of people with Teslas that used camp mode and also use their Ford F-150 uh, with the pro onboard feature where you have a 7.2 kilowatt inverter that could actually run their whole house. So a lot of people actually plugged in their entire house into their F-150 truck. Um, and so I think you will see that this feature um, is going to become more standard uh, because it costs like an extra $300 to add this thing to a lot of these vehicles. And, you know, to have your vehicle be your source of resiliency is just so, so smart. Yeah, it was so cool. Simon Mann uh, was telling me about how he did that. And it, it was, uh, he's the executive director of uh, the Southern Renewable Energy Association. He lives in Fort Worth and, you know, they could charge their phones uh, and, uh, it, it was a big deal that they were able to do that. I've been trying to choose free electrons that are not energy related to show people that I'm reading and thinking about things other than these topics. And that you have a life. Yeah, we know it's not <laughs> true, Stephen. But most of the things that come up that are interesting to me are from like science magazines that I subscribe to. They're in my my feed. And one that, that came to me this week was about lucid dreaming. Have you all ever had a lucid dream where you're aware of what's happening inside the dream? I, I have those a lot. You do? I do. I'm so jealous. I've been trying. I've tried to train myself to have a lucid dream. I've never been able to. I mean, I have had them in my like co coincidental ones in my life a couple of times, but I've never been able to like do it regularly where I'm be able to aware and be aware and interact with my surroundings. Catherine, what about you? Is that like where you're able to like change the trajectory of a dream? Yes. Consciously? Yeah, yeah I yes. do that all the time. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm definitely going down the wrong rabbit hole and I have to find another one. <laughs> Is there like, but is there some sort of like benefit to lucid dreaming? Well, it turns out you can communicate with the outside world, potentially. A bunch of researchers, there were four independent teams in France, Germany, the Netherlands, and the US, and they brought together a bunch of people who could actively lucid dream, train themselves to do so, or people who have had a lucid dream in the past. And they asked a set of 158 questions to these dreamers. And as it turns out, the folks who have had a lucid dream or who 
regularly lucid dream were able to respond to the questions in their dreams uh, almost 19% of the time. And many of them would wake up and have a recollection of the questions and they were integrated into the dream in some random way. Um, like some, someone would tap out math. They would ask a math problem and someone like tapped out the math problem on a desk. Um, so I just thought that was so cool because it shows that you can actually link between your dreams with the outside world, potentially. I feel like this is going to be uh, somehow linked to the spinach sending emails. What? Wait, what is that? I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> you didn't hear about no. It's an MIT study that like spinach uh, can send chemical signals and send emails. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you were going some, somewhere different, Catherine. I thought you were going to tie this to the psyched, psychedelic drug movement that <laughs> seems to be taking off around the country with like mushrooms being legal in D.C., I think, now and a few other places. Well, I will tie you it back. You can go that direction if you want. <laughs> I will tie it back to Elon Musk, who thinks that there's a good chance we're in a simulation. So... Um, this this proves that if we are in a simulation that we can interact, understand our surroundings, and perhaps communicate with others outside of the simulation. <laughs> well, I think that's going to do it for this week's show. The Energy Gang is a production of Postscript Audio. Thanks to Ingrid Lobet, our senior editor, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, my wonderful co-hosts. I am the executive producer. Do the usual rigmarole. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's still super helpful. Send out a link to Spotify or Google Podcasts that people are finding us a lot there as well. And just give us a regular old shout out on social media. That is where we pick up a lot of new listeners. You can, of course, interact with us there. We try to read our messages and respond to people, but we don't always get to do so. However, we do read everything. So your ideas influence this show. Thank you for listening. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. We'll talk to you soon. And now for some bonus content. As we get deeper into 2021, we're looking at the dramatic ways that COVID has accelerated or could further accelerate the energy transition. Sara Kuyala loves her job. She gets to peer into the future and ask, what will electricity markets dominated by renewables look like? It's really nice to be part of that team because in a way we have a chance to look into a crystal ball uh, by, by doing this kind of analysis and modeling of the future systems. You've heard Sara on some previous episodes. She's the head of business development at Vertzilla, and she leads a 10-person team that models power systems. We get quite good and interesting insights on, on how the energy transition is going to develop power systems, what kind of technologies are, are in there and, and uh, what kind of phenomena we, we start to see as more renewables enter the systems. They create sophisticated maps of how different kinds of investments will grow clean energy capacity around the world. And so now that the U.S. government is devoting tens of billions of stimulus dollars to energy infrastructure, we wanted to ask Sara, what kind of future could those investments lead us to? But before we peer into the future, we have to start with lessons from the last economic crisis. There were a lot of funds directed toward renewable energy. Um, how did those investments play out and what can they tell us about why it's so important to direct funds to clean sources of energy? Well, I, I think um, the previous previous crisis have also provided the push for for 
uh, improvements on on new technologies and 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 therefore have uh, have enabled uh, further cost savings and and technological uh, development. Now the interesting interesting thing about the the utilization of this stim- stimulus money, uh, whether it's in the United States or in in every other world, is that the renewable energy already makes very good commercial sense. Uh, they they are in most parts of the world the cheapest source of uh, of electricity generation, and uh, and and there are no need as such for for governments uh, to. Uh, to subsidize those investments directly. The way Sara sees it, stimulus spending alone doesn't get us all the way to economy-wide decarbonization. But governments and policymakers can create a pathway for private companies to make additional investments in tech and infrastructure that can eventually get us to this goal. Uh, the the interesting and, and important part is for them to kind of provide the provide the grounds uh, that allow for uh, required investments into flexibility to come in that will support the renewable energy integration and and therefore fast track the the energy transition towards uh, low cost renewable energy sources. And so this is what Sara's crystal ball is telling us. Her team's models point to the need for investment in both renewables and flexible generation, like batteries and power to gas. Other companies can piggyback on these technologies to make deeper investments in new capacity. Those technologies are still today not commercially feasible. They are technically available, uh, but those technologies are also quite modular in nature, and we can expect to see similar cost reductions there. With those elements, we should be should be quite well in track on on the way towards the energy transition for for hundred percent renewable energy. It's really important to uh, to bring out both of these sources for flexibility, both storage and then flexible generation. We will see both types of uh, flexibility in all power systems, both uh, both starting from today and even in the final 100% renewable energy systems. Renewables will dominate grids, but we'll need power generation capacity with a lot of flexibility to get through the seasonal variability of those resources, like the long, dark winters in Sara's country, Finland. Now the question is, if if we continue to need, for example, engine-based flexible power systems in 100% renewable systems, how will those uh, those power plants run? Uh, can can uh, how can they be part of a 100% renewable energy future? And I think this this comes uh, then to the energy transition from the fuel point of view. For quite a few years uh, still. Uh, based on our modeling, we see that these uh, the flexible power plants will run on natural gas. But when we really come to the steps uh, closer to 100% renewable energy systems, maybe after 80% or 90% renewable energies, we have enough surplus renewable energy available in the system uh, to cost effectively manufacture synthetic fuels um, out of the out of that excess renewable energy sources. Those fuels we can store in in gas pipelines in the same way as we do today and and utilize that synthetic renewable fuels in flexible power generation plants when that is needed. Well, Sara, thank you very much. A lot to be hopeful for here. Yes, absolutely. I, I Based on our, our models and the team sees the future bright, I think we have the right technologies. Uh, they are becoming very cost effective and 100% renewable energy systems can become a reality. 
Sara and her team at Vertilla have made their Atlas of 100% Renewable Energy available to everyone on Vertilla's website. You can go there and see all kinds of data and analysis about energy markets in a post-COVID world, and you'll probably find some surprises too. Check out the Atlas and see your optimal path at vertsilla.com slash atlas. That's W-A-R-T-S-I-L-A, vertsilla.com slash atlas.